Kasada Bowman. Today, my guest is Chef Ben Shuri. He joins us from Melbourne, Australia, where currently he's chef and owner of Attica. From three hats in the Good Food Guide to a spot on the world's 50 best restaurants list, Attica has had many accolades. And while awards are nice, they don't even begin to compare to the life lessons that Chef Shuri has learned on his journey. Lessons that he's kind enough to share with us today. We'll be discussing the emotions and elements that come with the psychology of dining. Also, the balance of being a destination restaurant. Plus, the experience of closing and rebranding Attica during the height of the pandemic. So I'll start by asking, as we always do, Chef Shuri, have you eaten yet? This could be a meal from today or a cup of coffee that you're drinking now. Or it could be the last meal that you have a really great memory about, one that truly resonated with you. It could be from 10 years ago or any time. Well, I have eaten. It's, um, it's lunchtime here. I haven't had lunch yet, but I have had breakfast. But it was super boring. It was cereal, and I forced myself to eat it. I'm not a natural breakfast eater. Um, but I, you know, I knew that I, if I didn't have it this morning, I was going to run out of energy before lunchtime. Um, I haven't had coffee because unfortunately I've had this weird thing with my throat lately where it, I've been drinking coffee and it's kind of been swelling my throat and I'm, and I'm not a hundred percent sure what's going on, uh, with it, but it's really unpleasant. So I've had to stop drinking coffee, which is, which is terrible living in the city of Melbourne and not being able to drink coffee. This is one of the world's greatest places to drink coffee. So that's uh, hopefully I can get to the bottom of that and start drinking coffee again. But um, I had to settle for a chai latte, which is not something that I ever, ever drink. I just, I just wanted something nice. <laughs> um, but, yeah, um, in terms of, like, meals, I mean, I know, like, my partner Kyle and I live together and, and run the restaurant together, and so we share the cooking responsibilities at home, both for, you know, our lunch during the day at Attica um, and for our family. And... Uh, she made um, something that she called pizza beans. Um, she's quite creative, actually. She's not a professional chef, but she's she's a really she's the best home cook I've ever met. And she made this thing called pizza beans a couple of days ago, which was kind of using up the things in our fridge. We had um, made a lot of tomato sauce and bottled it last summer, um, and we had like way too many tins of different types of beans in the cupboard you know they just build up like you start with one and then all of a sudden you've got seven tins of beans and we had some really really good handmade salami so she combined those things with cheese and kind of baked them and that's really delicious so that's what we're going to be having for for lunch and and prior to that um our head chef matt had just arrived with some fresh bagels from baker blue which is a really terrific bakery here in melbourne um so it's kind of been a little bit of everything nice yeah, definitely have to get that looked at living in Melbourne with the coffee. We need to get that figured out. <laughs> I know, I'm going to go for scans and all sorts of stuff because it's, yeah, it's not being pleasant. But, um, yeah, I'll get to the bottom of it because, yeah, not, not being able to drink coffee, it's, it's, not, you know, it's not really an option long term. No. Well, we're going to jump right in so you can get to your, your pizza beans. I want you to have your lunch. So let's get into the interview. Um, and we're going to start by going back to the beginning, talking about your early days at Attica. You moved to Melbourne in 2002. In 2005, you become the executive chef at Attica. 
At this point, the restaurant is struggling. The dining room, not full every night. It's more of a local spot. And I'm just so curious what that first year was like when you're just the chef, not the owner. You could walk away if you wanted at this point. But what made you stay? This is a great question. Um, Maybe just plain and simple that I was really naive and I thought that if I couldn't turn it around and I couldn't make it work, then I would be like a tremendous failure for the rest of my life. Like that's probably that's probably the motivating the main motivating thing. The fact that I had a young child as well who was six months old, Kobe, my son, um, was also hugely motivating. Um, it was more like a, a sense of just really being very determined to not to not break it, to not let it fail. Just I kind of flatly refused to. Um, that took. Uh, a great amount of resolve and in, an incredible work ethic, I think, um, at that time. You know, there was m- several years where 100-hour weeks were the norm because we just didn't have any staff and I had no experience running a kitchen um, and I was completely hopeless, really, if I look back on it. I was 27 and uh, way out of my depth and it was too young to become a head chef. But circumstance, I guess, had sort of forced that. And I'd been cooking for a really long time since I was professionally since I was 14 and I qualified um, by the time I was 18. But I still kind of wasn't ready emotionally to have the full responsibility of it. And um, I was just very dogged about it, you know, like just had a lot of determination and every day, you know, excited to to do it but also not really sure 100% what I was doing, you know. I just thought that naively if I cooked this personal food that you know spoke of me, my heritage and where I come from, um, that hopefully that, that would work. Um, it just took a really long time to work. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I find it interesting that despite the lack of customers, you knew, you had a feeling that the bones were there that you could take this restaurant and make it your own, even if you had to go broke. And I find it interesting, you know, when you've talked in interviews previously about buying it. So to buy Attica, you saved $40,000 for a deposit on a house. And then you bought one for $340,000. It was two hours away from the restaurant, but the property doubled in value. And you use the equity to leverage a loan to purchase the business in 2015. And then once Attica is yours, life doesn't get easier overnight. At this point, you owe $150,000 in purchases alone. You don't have enough pots and pans. You're maxing out credit cards. And you're feeling like nobody cares about the restaurant. But, and this is this beauty, the beauty of the journey with your story This tough journey allows you to develop your own voice in cooking and customers start to take notice. And there was one when I was researching you and it's in chef's table that you talk about it, that one night a customer says, no matter what you do, don't change, stay true to yourself. And I was interested if you take us back to that, that moment in time, what did it feel like? when you heard those words, 
did you feel seen for the first time as a chef? Well, you know, that night that that person said that to me, um, which I'm very grateful um, to them for saying that, but I but I actually thought that they were inviting me out to give me an earful about how terrible it all was. So I, I was expecting to be criticised when I came to the table, um, but instead they, they sort of praised me and said this is different and unique and you have something and you shouldn't let anybody tell you what to do. You need to stay true and you need to keep going in this direction. They were experienced diners, I suppose, and... Um, that was really amazing, you know, really amazing, and it really did help. Um, and it's funny in life, you know, and I'm acutely aware of this as an employer, that those little pieces of direct um, feedback, positive feedback, can make a really big change in somebody's life. Uh, those people were left and probably never, ever remember that they said that to me or ever remembered that moment. But I, But if that didn't happen, then perhaps, you know, I do give up because – Earlier that week, before they gave me that feedback, I, you know, I, I had somebody say to me that what we were doing was complete rubbish, and that I must be on drugs, uh, must be taking speed to have written a menu like this, and sort of stormed out. So that was pretty hard to take. I, I did know that my menu was different, but I wasn't trying to deliberately be different. I was just trying to be myself because, you know, for all of my weaknesses, I know that 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 I can only kind of be the best version of myself. That's all I can be. I, I've never been a person that's wanted other people's things um, and I don't suffer from jealousy, fortunately. And so I've always sort of had the view that I'm best to work on the things that I control and the things that I'm good at um, and promote those and then just to focus on my weaknesses. So for me, it was like not about really competing with other restaurants, even though there's always competition. It, it it was more about just trying to control the things that I could control and 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 have my own voice. Um, and those people saw it, and they certainly weren't like the last, but they were the first. And um, you know, I really took a lot out of it. It was a really it was a really lovely moment. And clearly, you know, we're talking about it now, um, sixteen years later. I haven't forgotten it. I'm, I'm really grateful to them because they could have just as very well as many people do, just enjoyed their meal and then um, and then left. You know, but it takes um, it's like an act of kindness, you know, to to have the self awareness to think, oh, hey, this is actually really great. But why don't we tell that that young person that that this is really great? Because you know that might encourage them. We might be able to come back again, you know. Um, but honestly, yeah, that there was a really rough time, and uh, it just went a really long way. And then there's a time back in two thousand nine when you're about four years into being executive chef at Attica. So this is before you purchase the business. And at this point, when I was researching, you said it was nearly a time where you threw it all away. And that, you know, just such a big fan of yours, being such a big fan, I it took me for, back for a moment to read that because from what you put out there and what, what I've seen just from what the general public sees um, it was so interesting that you had been through this time where you were dealing with circumstantial depression. And at times just thinking about you barely being able to get out of bed. Um, it, it, took me for a loop for a minute because 
of what you put out into the public and for you to be open about it is something that is amazing to me because men often, you know, don't talk about it. We all deal with some level of this, every single human on this planet. Um, so I wanted to dive in the, into this a little bit. Um, I know that you recovered by reconnecting with things that made you happy, spending time with family, being outside. Um, and so I just want to spend a little time on it because I think the more we normalize it, the more we can shed the stigma surrounding it and hopefully help someone who might be listening now. There could be a chef that's in bed right now listening. Perhaps they can't see past the darkness. And I wanted to know if you would mind shedding some light on the perspective that helped guide you out of that chapter. Yeah, so sure. I mean, I, I guess I just fundamentally, uh, I'm not really a person that believes in making things look good if they aren't. It's not that I, by that, I don't mean that I want to wallow in my own sorrow or I don't want to be a martyr ever. But I just think there's so many successful people that gloss over the difficulties of life because of the way that they feel like they might be perceived. And I very much come from a background where that is completely real. And so, you know, I come from the back country of New Zealand from a farming background. And for men in particular to admit they have any kind of weakness, especially mental weakness, is a very dangerous and scary thing to most men growing up in the, in the back country because the community would brand you as damaged, um, unfortunately. Now, we've we've come a long way forward from that mentality, but generally that's still kind of the way it is. And there is a lot of suicide in farming communities in New Zealand, and that's tragic. Um, and I think it's in, in a lot of it is around people actually not being able to articulate to other people how they feel, you know, um, and therefore they have no support. And, uh, and that's a really, really sad and lonely place to be in. And, and I'd got myself into that place. I'd got myself into a place where... Um, you know, where I just couldn't articulate what I was thinking and feeling and I was keeping it all inside and the problems that I was dealing with, they felt insurmountable, you know, they just felt like so big and as, as is common when, when depressed, it they felt um, like I was the only one in the world that was experiencing them, okay, that was kind of what's going through my mind and, you know, there were problems like um, the struggle of the business, the fact that I was working, you know, in absolutely insane hours and that will have a huge detrimental impact on your mental health alone, you know, working 70 to 80 to 100 hours a week. There's just no avoiding that. It's not going to be a positive impact on your health, mental health or your physical health. And so, so I, you know, the breakdown relationship with, with the person that owned the business, not seeing my family, and then having a very caustic work environment that largely I'd, you know, I'd allowed. I hadn't created it, but I'd done a bad job of hiring people and I'd hired people over um, for, I'd hired people for solely skill and not for emotional intelligence, you know. Big mistake. Um, one of the best ways of, you know, getting yourself, avoiding getting yourself in this position if you're out there and listening and you own a restaurant is just to make better hiring decisions, Um so all these things culminated and I felt like I couldn't get out of this sort of rut, this black hole that I was in, and it was making me really sad. You know, that's the best way to describe it. And it was making me not enjoy cooking and not enjoy life. I was disconnected from my family and um, it was a real struggle. And 
I thought about just um, stopping doing Attica altogether. I thought, well, there's the big problem. You know, like if I remove that big problem from my life, then 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 I won't feel like this. And I, you know, I was right on a nice edge about quitting and I was going to go, honestly, I was going to go and work a catering job in a small town here in Australia. Um, um, and then I, I was fortunate because, you know, a couple of things happened. I met I met somebody that, um, a muscle farmer, Lance Whiffen, who'd just gone through incredibly hard times, um, you know, and he was just very open. He was an older man and he was just, when I met him the first time, he was just like an open book, you know, and I was just sort of like listening and asking him questions. I was taking everything he was saying um, about his struggles in business and it wasn't, again, it wasn't, he wasn't saying it so for any pity or any sadness or any any you know sense of being a martyr he was just being open and i was like wow i started you know i remember like even that was like the first moment that it started to change slightly because i was like wow like he's overcome all these things you know like terribly difficult things and yet he's still here and he still loves what he does you know and he didn't have to give that up and I thought there's something in that for me, and and so slowly it didn't happen overnight, but it did feel like it sort of did change quickly as well in some ways. Um, and I've described it the best way I could describe that feeling of coming out of um, out of that place was like the like the clouds that opened up and the sun began to shine a little bit, where before it was just grey clouds, and um, and it actually empowered me hugely that time like that coming out of that was like wow like it's kind of like a second chance you know and um and I made a whole heap of changes that I still stand by today and that was you know it was 2009 I think you said I can't even remember when this happened but I'm sure you're right um that was you know 12 years ago 13 years ago um and um yeah one thing I vowed to myself was that I would never ever let myself be in that position again I would never get myself in that position again and I I always said my whole career if I didn't love doing this if I didn't love cooking and running restaurants that I wouldn't do it that's like that I would make a call to do it not to stop doing it before I, I let it deteriorate to the point where it wasn't good quality anymore because it's never really been about the money so it, it's always just been about doing what I love and wanting to make this beautiful thing um, and have a really good time while I'm doing it. So, um, you know, the people that were causing problems left and I hired better people and everything started to sort of change. Um, the reason why, you know, I, talk, I talked about it was because nobody was talking about it in our industry back then. And I thought, man, I can't be the only one that suffered from this, you know, like I can't be the only person um and i just thought like what you said really was if i could help somebody by hearing the story um the you know the glamorous life of a successful person is not always really what it seems from the outside you know and we, we know this in our hearts because we've read articles about people looking good on social media and um you know always pretending like that life is extraordinary and life is not extraordinary every day you know but um but if you surround yourself with good people and enough good people, then life's pretty damn good, you know. And that was kind of my, you know, my um, my resolution was that I can't be around negative people. Um, and, you know, negative people, um, you know, I feel for them if they're suffering stuff, but then to go and sort their problems out before they come and work here. And 
that that sounds harsh, but it just it just it's just self protection, you know. It's just like my mechanism of keeping my own mental sanity in place. Um, it's not that people don't don't have struggles here as well. Of course they do, and we help and support them. But but what I do ask of people is to come to work with a great attitude every day, you know. And I don't think that's unreasonable. You know, I'm providing a lot of things here for my team. In return, I expect, you know, an honest day's work and and a good attitude. And, um, you know, and by and large, um, since that kind of rule came about, it's been wonderful. And every day is a joy to to come to this building and to do this stuff with these amazing people. So, um, but, yeah, I I just think um, men in particular have have a real hard time, you know, showing kind of any sign of weakness, especially. I met this farmer um, who had... um, had lost a lot of people in his community in Western Australia and in the farming community. So he decided that he was going to stop farming and start actually working to help people. And, uh, and you know, he said something great to me and it was like, you know, most most of these situations around circumstantial depression could be solved over a cup of tea. And I was like, damn, you know, and in a way that's kind of how I don't want to like, you know, diminish it, but that was kind of how, you know, I got over it was talking to people and having conversations um, you know, we have this this charity here called Are You Okay? And it promotes like asking people, are, are you all right? You know, and and um, I've learned that sometimes they, people will automatically say, yes, I'm fine. But if I know them, I'll, I'll know to ask again. No, but really, like, are you sure you're okay? You know, um, and that's something I learned from my partner, Kylie, as well, about opening up, being more expressive and not carrying stuff. You know, it's really like for me, I can, and I can only speak to my own, you know, my own circumstance, my own situation. I'm not a medical practitioner or a psychologist at all, but I, but I, but I can just speak to what helps me. And getting things off your chest um, and not carrying them is actually vital for positive mental health for me. So, re- really, even around matters of discipline at Attica, like if somebody makes a mistake, I'll tell them. You know, and if it's a big mistake, I'll tell them in that moment, you know, with a level head, but I'll tell them because I don't want to carry it on. I don't want that that baggage, whatever it is, you know. Um, if, if something has happened in my relationship, you know, with Kylie, like some little niggle like all relationships have, like we'll try to bring it up on the day rather than carry it because otherwise it just turns over in your brain and becomes a bigger thing and it seems like it's unsurmountable but most problems are not unsurmountable you know that's the reality and sometimes if you could just have a cup of tea with somebody and and say um and then you know i know for myself when i'm if i have a cup of tea in a situation with somebody i go you know what i really i really think you could actually make some changes and that problem would probably go away you know like um this is my experience you know but just being a caring friend listening even not even offering an opinion a lot of the time, it's just really valuable, I think, you know, just making that time. Um, and most people feel better after that, you know? Uh, 100%. And when you're talking, it's so funny about energy, like releasing when you do have an issue that comes up every everyday life, dealing with it then, and then releasing it, like you said, so it can't mon- multiply because energy is so powerful because like when you shed those team members that maybe weren't so positive and then brought the fresh energy in, then wow, everything clears up and you have this abundance of positivity, right? Like very amazing. 
Yeah, it is. It's 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 and it's incredibly powerful and essential to a restaurant, any restaurant or any business. You know, whether you want to be high performance or whether or not you want to do a wonderful job for local people, it doesn't matter. It's actually exactly the same principles. And um, and I'm amazed, you know, how often people get that part wrong. Like it just can't be underestimated. You know, I think it's like, you know, like even a like if you look at like in New York, arguably the most successful restaurateur Danny Meyer it seems like that's his been his philosophy as well right like um just uh yeah just have good people around and a lot of things you know support them if you're the boss but a lot of things will be resolved just by positive thinking you know not burying problems dealing with them and overcoming them yeah can you also touch on the importance of balance and how impactful time away from the restaurant can be for mental health? Um, well, it's it is essential. I'm I'm not even like the best person like in that regard because I'll preach that, but then like I won't necessarily do it. But um, because I do, I sort of don't view you know I guess. I don't sort of have two lives. I have like one life and I view everything on the level. Like I, I, my work is my passion. My family is my passion. My partner, Kylie, is my passion. My sports that I do are my passion. I try to apply the sort of same level standard to all of them. Um, and it, it's, um, it, it just, it's just easier for me that way. Um, but to take time, um, out is also reinvigorating and sometimes can be inspiring um, in its own way. And I share this like very personal like antidote from this morning, which is ridiculous. And people are going to be like, what were you doing, man? Um, <laughs> but like I had some laser treatment for some hair that was like too long, right? Like that bothers me. So I was having this laser treatment and I don't know if you've had laser treatment, but man, on me, it was like next level painful. Like it was so painful being zapped by this bloody laser. It was like being injected with a needle like over and over and I was hating it. And I, so I was like trying to submit to it and just trying to ignore the pain. I couldn't. So I thought, oh, I'll, I'll focus on, I'll try to focus on something positive. And I was being zapped by, painfully by this laser and I had what I thought was this like great idea for this new vegetable dish at Attica because I was so determined to not like, I just needed something else than the pain, right? Like, so I tried to distract myself by trying to be creative in that moment and it worked actually. And I've been trying to think of a, a good vegetable dish for a couple of days and I hadn't really come up with anything. Um, yeah. So. So um, does this dish have something to do with a uh, light or fire? Or <laughs> it's actually kind of simple. And the idea was simple was to do like a, like a vegetable tart, right that that was the idea but rather than making a pastry to use the vegetables to make the shell so um like to use the skins of pumpkins and like scrape out all of the flesh from them like blanch them and scrape out all the flesh and maybe the same with potato skins or something or other vegetables and then press them all into a, like a tart a, like a classic tart tin like a fluted tart tin and then put away with butter and and then bake it until the whole thing was crisp so you've just got this like thin tart shell that's just vegetables there's no pastry and then layer like beautiful vegetables inside that tart um that was that was the idea um i thought it was kind of a neat idea but i was a bit surprised that it came up 
um, during what I would which, what I would describe as um, laser torture. You know. <laughs> well, I've read that you consider yourself a private person, and that you were actually hesitant to appear in the Netflix series Chef's Table back in 2015. Of course, this production turned out to be far beyond any typical television food show. But you were in the first season. So in a way, you had to take a chance in some mm. respect. Mm. Can you bring me back to the moment that producers reached out to you and explain how they pitched their vision to you? Well, it's a really interesting um, question. That that private side um, of me was definitely a product of my upbringing and New Zealand, where I where I grew up. Um, so there's sort of a, a thing we call tall, tall poppy syndrome in New Zealand, and that is about like not becoming too successful because somebody will come and cut your head off, you know, um, cut the poppy down. Um, and so there's there's that's in like the back of my mind, certainly at that time, less so today because I've realize that it's good to be open you know and I realized that like by being closed and not trying new experiences that I was actually missing out on a whole side of life that was really fun but I didn't want to do chef's table um and I ignored the emails from the producers when they when they when they came through and I thought oh just ridiculous tv show like you know tv shows aren't very serious I considered myself a serious cook not not like a celebrity tv person and like I was dedicated to the craft of cooking and getting better than that. And I'm like, I don't see how this rubbish helps that. Like that's kind of, that was kind of my mentality. And then um, it was actually my friend Magnus Nielsen, the Swedish chef who reached out and said, Hey Ben, like I've met with these guys, like they're really nice. Like I think you should reconsider, like you should respond to them. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, Magnus, you know, um, sort of. But then it turned out that I was in Los Angeles um, with my family um, and they had found out that I was in Los Angeles. And um, so they basically, I don't want to make it sound like they were begging, but they were like very keen to meet with me while I was in Los Angeles. So we were staying at this really horrible hotel in Anaheim right by Disneyland. Um, and they came to the hotel and met me late one night after we'd, we'd been to Disneyland with the kids and um, Brian McGinn, who was the producer and the director of my episode came by and he like just laid it out. Like I sat, he sat with me for a couple of hours and just laid it out how it would, how he thought it would be. And, you know, it was a, he was a kind of a rookie then too. Like he's an incredible um, director and producer, but it, then it was a young guy. and I really liked him. I really got like a, just a, you know, I'm a person that like connects to humans. I love humans and I love human relationships, but I need to have those relations. I really need those to be kind of in person or on video, not over a cold email or a text. And um, so I, so I said, um, you know, let, let's sit down. We had a conversation and he was just a great guy. And I thought, well, well, I actually, I trust this person. So uh, what the hell I'll do it. And so, I agreed to do it and they came out from America, the crew, and um, and um, they were with me for about 14 days and, like, it felt like 24 hours a day and it was pretty intense, you know. It was, like, really intense. And they shot all of this stuff, right, like really emotional story about, you know, the restaurant nearly going broke and the story that people know. Um, 
But then kind of like Attica is a fun place as well. Like there's a lot of like laughing and joking and, and having a good time here. And um, and they filmed that as well. But when they edited it, they you know, they really just put like the, what I would call like the emo stuff in. And I was like, oh, I watched it. And I was like, oh, my God, like this is the most horrible thing. I can't believe I agreed to do this. Um, and I was like, I hated it so much, but it was too late, right? Like it was done. Um, so that was definitely my like opinion of it and maybe still is, but it's been softened, um, a great deal by the thousands of people that have said to me uh, how much they loved it and, um, how much it touched them. And so that was like a really, a a really cool thing. I definitely don't regret doing it, but it took some convincing. It did change. (laughs) Everything changed after it as well. Like that, that, that timing of that show on the timing of that platform rising up um, was crazy and meant that kind of no matter where I went, um, you know, be recognised, whether it would be in Mexico City or um, in Japan or wherever. So the the reach of that um, documentary series was was vast and very powerful. Um, So I was certainly, like, you know, grateful to it. The other other thing that's really cool is that, People saw it and sort of saw, I guess, what restaurants are really like in some ways and would come here for the right reason, you know. Um, and I don't mean to sound like um, like a snob by saying the right reason, but I, I mean the reason, you know, for coming here is because what it what it represents is something that you would want to be a part of, you know, like you like the sound of the food or the philosophy and you want to have a good time, you know, but Attica's not traditional fine dining in that sense, doesn't use the ingredients of traditional fine dining, nor does it have the um, the stiffness of the service of traditional fine dining. So for some people that have eaten in a lot of, you know, high-end restaurants, it's a bit confronting to find that you're not going to eat caviar or foie gras here ever, Um that a carrot might be as celebrated as an ant, you know, um, that things from Australia are what are the most important to the restaurant and um, they're beautiful and valuable to us, but that's that's taken some time to get that through. But what Chef's Table was able to do was sort of say to people in a way, hey, this is kind of what happens there. And, um, and so the people that came because of Chef's Table, um, you know, they – they have some idea, which is which is cool, and you know, because you never want to be in a situation in a restaurant where you look out and you see somebody who's like, you know, most vast majority of people love coming here, but there's a few people that, it, like I said, it doesn't meet their expect expectation for whatever reason, mostly around um, the fact that we don't serve those luxury ingredients. You know, we serve luxury ingredients and just different kind. Um, and so they could be like disappointed because it's not like the three Michelin star restaurant that the experience that they had in France, you know. And um, and we are unapologetic about that. But but the thing is, is I would rather they didn't come. I'd rather that they, you know, that they saved their money and went somebody that would make them happier. You know, that's really like how I feel. It's kind of a place of empathy rather than rejection. It's just, you know. Um, I had a conversation with a neighbor on a street last night about this very subject. We just moved into a new neighborhood and he said, Oh, you know, you're that guy from the restaurant. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, Oh, you know, you were on chef uh, on chef's table. weren't you?" I said, yes, yes. And he said, Oh, we've had like probably 10, 10 
visitors or friends visit us from overseas in the last five or six years and um, they've all said we want to go to that restaurant that we saw on Netflix, Attica is in this area, isn't it? And um, so that's pretty wild, right? Like when you, you know, when you hear that from a, from a stranger on the street. Well, and this is a perfect segue into my next question because this is what I'm really fascinated about. After the show arrives on Netflix, I want you to describe the effect it has on your life. And you started to touch on that, like wherever you're traveling, people recognize you. And I'm curious, is it immediate or six months to a year later? I guess I'm looking for you to take us all on a bit of an audio journey, kind of a step-by-step trip down memory lane from the moment that the share that the show airs and you watch it and you're like, oh, geez, so emo, to when you notice the show actually starts to change your life. Do thousands of diners from around the world begin arriving within a few months? Does all of this publicity affect your service and team? And I know this is many questions rolled into one, but the process is what fascinates me because we all watch the show, but we rarely get to see what happens after that show reaches millions of people. Yeah, well, yeah, it everything did change, you know, in a lot of ways. And um, like, I'm, I'm really in some ways like a very naive person. It's no easy way to say this, but sometimes I don't notice people noticing me, but other people, other people who are with me always notice, like my children always notice, my partner always notices, but I've been like that before and after Netflix. Um, But what would happen after that and soon after um, really, probably, you know, within, yeah, within six months, it definitely felt war- different walking down the street or different being in public, actually, you know. Um, and even for like somebody that, you know, the perfect example of, of me is like, you know, as a younger person or even to today, if I was, I would never know if I was, if I was on a date, whether or not that person would like me or not. Like, I would have no idea, right? Like, just absolutely, like, they could be putting out all kinds of signals that are really obvious to other people, but I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. Right. Like that's sort of, that's me a little bit. Um, and so my sense for that is not, not amazing, but, um, but yeah, I mean, just like, you know, walking down the street with kids and somebody drives past in a car and is like yelling at you, you know, like, like not in a mean way, like he's just yelling like something out, like I see you or, you know, uh, you know, riding past them, you're walking down the street and riding past them on the bike, and they're like, shooey, or like just weird stuff like that. Like, that's just like so foreign to me. Uh, the other thing that happened to me, probably prior to, prior to Netflix as well, was that I'd, st- you know, started to become really well known for cooking and running a restaurant here. And one of the reasons why, you know, apart from, you know, moving and buying this house two hours away was that because I wasn't actually handling the adulation very well. Like, it wasn't something that I seeked. It wasn't something that I desired. And I wasn't dealing with the attention from media and people, you know, who were writing about the restaurant increasingly um, locally and globally. And I actually had to come to terms with it. Like, and I, and how I did is that I, you know, I spent time, I was fortunate I spent time with a couple of really famous people and who like got mobbed on the streets, right? Like, and I watched the class at which they handle themselves with, and I'm like, man, I can learn from that. Like, it's not, I'm not on that level. 
that is a crazy level. Like that is like you can't leave your house level. And yet the way the dignity, the respect that they had for strangers, I was like, wow, that's like get over yourself, man. Like, you know, like you need to like learn how to deal with this and like be gracious. And um, and it's not that I'm grateful for that, like for, for any kind of celebrity. It's not something that I look forward to or look for. But I am like grateful when somebody comes up to me and says, I really appreciate what you do. Like, and I want to articulate back to them, I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to say that. Thank you. You know? Um mm. and and just, you know, because I also remember like what it was look what it was like to look up to people and maybe meet them. It's like, you know, exciting and and um cool. We still have that moment sometimes when somebody comes to the restaurant that you really like admire, you know. So yeah, it's a it's a it's a process, but I'm really comfortable with it now. Um, and I really, you know, I like to give people a moment if I can. You know, just I just think it a little bit goes a long way. And like, um, you know, I'm you know I'm in a privileged position as well, so I feel you know like that's the right thing to do. You know, just um, be cool about it. Don't don't be a dick about it. You know, that's there's been times I think it's been a little challenging for my kids and. Um, you know, they certainly like find it bemusing, let's just say. But but also I think they're kind of proud of the success of the restaurant as well. But they wouldn't say it to me, you know. I'd hear about it from down the line, you know. So Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll jump into a similar topic. Um from three hats in the good food guide to a spot on the world's 50 best restaurants list, Attica has been included on the award circuit many times. And I want you to go back to the first time that you made the world's 50 best list. And I'm curious, we're talking about Netflix, we're talking about Chef's Table. Is it similar to being on Chef's Table when it comes to the logistics and overall effect on Attica? Is it a surge of reservations are you getting acquainted with a different type of diner, things like that? Yeah, it's a pretty big change um, because I never, ever saw any of that stuff coming and I could have never imagined any of that stuff happening in my wildest dreams. In complete sincerity, I could never imagine being good enough to win any kind of award or get any kind of recognition even, right? Like it's just not even part of um, my thinking, you know, I think when I was young, I would have, you know, would be, I'm thinking it would be great to be recognised and to, to get an award, but I'm not thinking it's going to happen. So when it does start to happen, um, it's mind-blowing, frankly, you know, like mind-blowing. Like it's just like, whoa, like what the hell? Like this tiny under-resourced restaurant in a suburb of Melbourne, people care about what we do. You know, that's that's pretty weird. That hasn't happened many times in history, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so, yeah, I was really grateful. I, I suppose, you know, and I do say this to my staff and to young chefs that I meet because, you know, I think before I'd ever won an award, the the idea of winning an award was a, like an amazing thing, right? Like just like, you know, wow, if, I, if we could win an award, like, what would that mean? Or, you know, I'm ambitious. So, you know, I'm not without ego, but it, it, but the feeling of winning one the first time was great in that moment. Um, But then the next day it was like kind of worse than before, you know, because it was like, I was expecting more, you know, like personally, right. Like I was 
not that I was expecting more awards. I was expecting it to be more life-defining, you know, like more exhilarating long-term, and it wasn't. You know, it was just a moment, just like any other good moment. But you have, if you're working positively, you have moments like that every week, you know, that that are awesome. Like when you think of how to make a silly vegetable tart when you're being zapped by a laser or when you, you know, you solve a problem with a couple of members of your team and you're just so happy that you've resolved that and that you know you won't make that mistake again and your company will be better for it. Like, Or like you're eating out and you just have like the most beautiful thing made by somebody else. Like those moments, you know, I guess that what I'm trying to say is that like I, I, I quickly learned that that awards are just like tiny little like fleeting things and what is more important and crucial is to just enjoy every moment every day, you know, just try to find the joy in everything rather than putting all of this pressure on yourself and all of this, um, oh, what's the word, um, prestige on something that's uncontrollable anyway in the first place but also ultimately doesn't really mean that much, you know. Mm, yeah. um, especially not long-term, you know, I think that's the thing was that, um, you know, yeah, like it's a, it's a nice short-term thing and it has an impact on the business for a brief moment, you know. Um, the World's 50 Best stuff, that had a bigger impact than a brief moment, you know, that that you know, that that would have lasted like, you know, a year or something and the other awards maybe, you know, three months. Um, and it all helps, you know, I'm, I'm not – being disingenuous or ungrateful i'm really grateful um but i but i just learned pretty quickly that that if i i I've always viewed being a chef and being in this industry and running this restaurant as a really long-term thing which is odd for me because i don't really set a lot of long-term goals i'm gonna live in the moment each day type of person but i've always viewed my career as you know something that i was going to do for 40 50 years you know and um I guess I'm like more halfway through, right, or more than halfway through. And, yeah, and I still view it that same way. Like I'm going to be doing this until I'm 65. So, you know, and I'm looking at other people as references of how to live like a successful, happy, professional life based on their experiences as they aged and how they like may have like, and Yola Tengo, the New York band is a perfect example because they're just so rad, the people, like the best people, and they still make, incredible music and they still have such amazing engagement with their fans they never lost sight of who they were you know or their roots and so that's the sort of lesson that i started to look for you know while we were you know getting awards and stuff it it was cool but i was also looking i was also thinking this is not what i cracked up to be so what is this all about you know like and Mm -hmm. i realized well life just you know life's just about like lots of just making lots of great moments and not like and also, like, you know, I met this really high-level basketball coach one day and he was talking about coaching and, you know, he was saying that win or lose, he doesn't overreact. I'm like, damn, that's the thing too, isn't it? You know, like sometimes I've seen people accept awards and their celebration has been so intense that I was like almost like felt sorry for them. Like I'm like, damn, that means that much to you? Like how can it mean that much to you, right? Like because in reality it's – these are not first-time winners of awards I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. These are like people that won a lot of awards. I'm like, oh, my God. That's, I hope you've got enough in the tank for the rest of your life is what I'm saying, you know? like, yeah. Mm. Well, and that kind of leads into 
you know, you've been kind of outspoken about awards and the different perspective that you're describing now on them and that they're a little phony. Um, I want to go a little deeper. When you were talking uh, in a recent interview, you said, quote, it's probably influenced by my feelings at this moment and the absence of support from organizations. And this is during COVID, um, like those who have taken a lot from restaurants. The veneer, which was so thin, has just been completely stripped off. Awards just don't matter to me at all. And that's what we were just talking about. But what I want to kind of dig deeper in is, can you expand on that idea about the absence of support from organizations that have taken a lot from restaurants? What are these organizations taking? And how could they... How could they also offer more support to restaurants to create a more balanced relationship moving forward? Well, for one, they could stop focusing on just the high end. That's for that's for real, right? Like, you know, and just like support like a more diverse group of restaurants. Like some of my best meals in my life have not been in three-star places, right? Like mine. Like, you know, El Molino Central and Sonoma is one of the best meals I've had it's a roadside restaurant right like it's just an incredible restaurant with incredible people working at it and that that's not in any list that I know of but that's a bit of a crime like and I'm sure like everybody has places like that that really deserve a little more time in the sun so I think like just more broadly it would be good to see a greater balance because just because somebody doesn't you know, aspire to have a tasting restaurant, menu restaurant, doesn't make that doesn't make their work insignificant, you know. Um, and and like I said, some of my greatest pleasure, little places doing one thing, doing two things, you know, life-changing. Um, yeah. Makes me question what I do, right? Like I keep those experiences in mind, especially when they didn't cost much money, you know, like that's pretty humbling. Um, I think, well, like I'm charging this and it, how can I relate my value back to this? Because that better bloody will be there. Otherwise, it's got no integrity to me. Um, and then just on the, you know, the support thing, those organizations and companies, they they exist because of restaurants, you know. So no restaurants, they don't exist. So it's like an NBA team, you know, it's not a team without its players, right? Like I'm a big basketball fan. Um, so their most valuable resource of any NBA team is its players, and everybody knows that, right? Like, or certainly they're, they're learning it. Um, and so really, like, that, those guides, you know, they that's how it should, that sh- that's how it should be viewed. Like, what's your most valuable asset? Healthy restaurant industry. All right, there's a huge crisis. Perhaps what we were doing before, it doesn't mean very much anymore, you know? How could we flip? How could we pivot the way that restaurants are to support them on a really high and really excellent level, knowing that we need them to survive, right? Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're not relevant because what are we going to write about? Like, so for me, it's just like, you know, it was a missed opportunity and it was a bit of anger about that probably too when I did that interview because it was a feeling of like being quite alone, you know, that was that was certainly like it was a lonely time for a lot of people who were struggling in restaurants and in, and in hospitality. And I just think there was a huge missed opportunity to just really like for somebody to just come and absolutely own that space and kick ass, you know, and just mm-hmm. like have here's a map all across the world of the flipping people that are doing the damnedest to stay in business 
and we're going to give you daily updates. You know, we're going to have people on the ground or whatever. But instead, there was just nothing, you know. And locally, there was lots of support, like here in Melbourne from, you know, the people that matter, like the Good Food Guide and the papers. But globally, you know, I was like, wow, really? Like, it, you know, it, it felt weak. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Since we're talking about COVID, pre-pandemic, your book was filled up with reservations months in advance. Attica was a 62-seat restaurant. You had a team of 38 full-time staff. For 15 years, your operation was a well-oiled machine. You knew how to run it. When the pandemic hits, like all of us, you knew you couldn't operate the same way. So you launch Attica at home. These are ready-to-eat dinners being delivered six nights a week, up to 100 deliveries per night, up to nine cars on the road, all driven by your team, sometimes by you. Your world was flipped upside down. And I want to go into, and we've kind of touched on your general positivity and the life lessons that you've learned, but how did you stay positive during that time? And I don't mean just a generic thought, if you look back at that time, what things, activities, rituals did you do consistently to help clear your mind and motivate you to keep pushing forward? I, I'm really trying to jump into your mind, into your headspace, and picture your daily life two years ago. The world was filled with a lot of darkness at that time. Everyone in our industry was surrounded by the unknown, but from the outside, at least you looked focused and really positive. Well, initially not so. Um, like initially the the Grand Prix was about to be held in Melbourne and my birthday was on the 15th of March. It was two years ago. And that, that day was a Sunday and I was supposed to be celebrating my birthday with my family, with my children and it was the first day that we'd, you know, we'd we'd seen what was happening in America and other places. It was coming here, so we knew what was kind of coming, but we kind of didn't want to admit it, and we felt like some sort of fortress where we'd lock the gates and we were going to be okay. But you know, it the the virus came, and there that day was a realization that we were going to close. We have to close down, and it was the worst day of my life. I could not pick myself up. Like I, I was hiding. I hide things, right? Like I'll, I'll hide in the turmoil because it doesn't serve people immediately around me to know that it's not, it's not a, it's not a safe thing to do, right? Like if you are, I think you know, the anxiety, of the boss, in the the workers and the people around the boss need to be shielded from that anxiety. And some of my mistakes in the past have been when I didn't shield them enough um, because you don't, you know. It's okay for me to feel anxious about something, but everybody doesn't need to feel anxious about it, right? Like unless it's a problem that faces all of us. So I was flipping out inside my head and um, feeling sorry for myself, right? And, you know, I, Kylie knew it and tried to pick me up and couldn't, and um, that was just sun the Sunday on my birthday. My kids didn't know, but, you know, kids are intuitive too, hey, so maybe they did know a little bit. But I tried to have a good day, but I couldn't, and I just – you know, Kylie was like, well, we should try takeaway. And I just, I'm like, there's no way that takeaway can save us. How can takeaway save us? You know, we're a $330 per person tasting menu restaurant. 
how can takeaway save us? You know, like I'm literally like not being rational or positive. I'm literally, this is kind of, that's not going to work. It's not going to work, right? I slept on it. And the next day I woke up and a, a friend of mine, um, you know, American man called Bruce Dunleavy had sent me a message, an email, and he said, just leave with positivity um, as long as you, you know, something to the words of as long as you leave with positivity, everything will go, it'll, it'll work out, you know, it'll work out. And uh, I thought, yeah, shit, yeah, that's it, right? Like that's, you know, that's got to be it. That's what I've got to do. I've got to leave with positivity. I said to Kylie, oh, what the hell? Like we're going to go broke anyway. So like if we close, let's just try to like, Let's just try this takeaway thing. You know, I can't believe, I still don't believe it's going to work. But um, so she hustled and started seeing it up in the back of the house and the ordering system. It was all done through our web- website, our own platform. I wrote a menu um, quickly with the team and we opened the bookings. And, you know, I guess like the first week, you know, that we did it, we were about, after a couple of days, we're about half the takings of a normal week. And I was like, wow, that's like a lot better than I could have imagined, you know. And so we started and then we just didn't stop. We just ran with it and pushed it, pushed it, pushed it so hard and, um, you know, worked all of the hours, just, you know, seven days, you know, 18 hours a day, Kylie and I, not the staff. And um, we've done so many different things, but we just thought we just need to, this has got to be a time that's really creative. You know, we've got to, we've got to use creativity to solve problems in business and problems in the community. So we've just got to keep coming up with new ideas and trying them. And so that's what we would do. We would just keep thinking of things, keep doing them, keep communicating about them to people um, and just, like, hustle. And you know what? Like, it really came down to me for, like, not having anything at all to fall back back on. I don't come from a money background. I came to Australia with five hundred dollars, and I and I built this thing. And I'm like, this is my only thing that I own. I didn't have a house. I, you know, I had nothing else than the restaurant. I don't have any money in the bank at all. Um, and, but I have this thing, and it's really valuable to me, not just from a financial point of view, but from like a cultural point of view, and from a point of view that this this thing is actually worth fighting for. Like, you know, it gives me a lot of joy. I want to do this. You know, so. And I and I couldn't believe that part of the, the that day of feeling tremendously bad was not being able to believe that after working so hard for so many years that it was going to be taken away from me through no fault of my own. Now I could accept it if it was through a fault of my own, but what was making me really angry was that here was this new thing that I hadn't seen coming, and what I actually learn through is that I need to be more flexible and more adaptable, right? Like, and if this new thing's coming, well, you can't just lie down and let it beat you. Like, you know, you've got to beat it. And that's sort of um, the, the mentality that we had. And, you know, I told the staff, I said, if you don't want to do it, like, I, I get it. You can sit it out. Everybody wanted to do it. Um, and we all worked full time the entire pandemic uh, on full wage. And, um, it's something I'm really proud of. Um, I wouldn't lie and say that it was easy either, but it was a lot of fun, right? Like that, what you view from the outside is the truth, you know, like it's not make-believe, you know. It, it was a time of immense creativity and I'm being really careful not to forget that as things start to feel slightly more normal, February was the most normal month in the business 
since the pandemic started. Not normal still, but the most normal month. Um, we're still wearing masks in the dining room. You know, takings are a little bit down, but not bad. Like it, it you know, it, it was pretty good. Like it felt pretty good, you know, and I think it, it was it was really nice to have that month. Now, you know, who knows what's around the corner, but I do know now that I guess no matter what is around the corner that we are, you know, we're prepared to fight it and, you know, at least, you know, it won't die wondering as, as, as uh, fatalistic as that sounds. Like I just thought, you know, I just couldn't have imagined being able to pick myself back up if, if it all if it failed, I just don't have any resources. I don't have any way of rebuilding, and um, you know, so it had taken what was it like till I was thirty nine or something like that to own the restaurant. You know, like it's a long time to wait to own your own restaurant, and mm-hmm. um, and I never thought it would happen, and it happened, and I and I just wasn't prepared to lose it. That's it. And I also wasn't strong, really, like when I said to people when they came to interview here and I said, I would like to offer you a job, I really meant it. Like I really meant I've got your back. Like not like just when things are good, but when things are bad as well. Like, like I, you know, I take those things really seriously and really personally. So, you know, it was a really strong personal ambition to sort of put the needs of, the employees first and the needs of the business second the whole time, you know, that like make sure they're getting, make sure that I can remove this one layer of stress and, and that's I can remove financial insecurity from the picture from them. Mm. So that's what I should do because that's within my control. And, um, and I can also provide, you know, a positive working environment and they can come here and they can avoid the news churn and they can avoid being stuck at home because we had the world's longest lockdown in Melbourne here. So it was really tough on people um, psychologically. You know, America had an incredibly difficult time as well in a different way. But here it was dealing with, you know, not being able to leave your home, having curfews, you know, it was really intense, you know. Well, and during this time when many restaurants are only in survival mode, your original plan to survive and to keep your team employed went beyond that. You actually hired more people during the pandemic and you were not losing money. So in the end, did Attica at Home end up being semi-profitable for the business? It was... Wildly successful sometimes, <laughs> and like, and so there was weeks where we cooked for obviously more people than we ever cooked for, and the takings were like far more than the restaurant ever taken in its history. Right, there were weeks that where it was like thirty percent above the highest week we ever had, which was wild because we're selling you know thirty dollar per person lasagna and but we're cooking for thousands of people, you know, now, right? Like it's a really big machine working out of two kitchens with, you know, sometimes 50 people here, um, you know, like you said in the introduction, nine or 10 cars on the road and then later refrigerated vans. It it was crazy. So we went from this really tiny little, you know, at pre-pandemic, you know, 60, 62 seats a night. Post-pandemic, we're now doing like 52 seats a night by choice, um, went from this little fine dining restaurant with a big brigade of chefs, like 25, making, you know, lots of little bits of food every day from scratch to having to go into full production, making hundreds and hundreds of kilos of bolognese and the like. And there was, 
incredible highs. Like there were times when we were just battling it, just, you know, there were so many orders that we could barely keep up with it. And it was amazing, like amazing. Um, and then there would, and then we came in and out of lockdown here all the time. Mm. So as soon as the lockdown came, nobody will want takeaway. Everybody won't go back to restaurants, but restaurants couldn't reopen because there was all these restrictions put on us with um, square space, uh, square meter ridge. And so we, at one time we could only open for 10 people. Now we're a team of nearly 40 people. We can't, no business can work like that. You know, we were already a team of, say, 40 people cooking for 50 people. That's a crazy statistic right there even. That's in normal times. You know, that doesn't make a lot of financial sense even in our current business model. But, but yeah, for 10 people. So we would have to keep doing takeaway because we couldn't reopen for 10 people. Um, and also then the rest of the country was sort of locked out of Victoria. So we only had the local community to, as a restaurant to, to draw from. Um, and so it would just absolutely go off a cliff and takings would be down like 99%. You know, like they, there'd, be, there'd be weeks where like you lost $80,000 a week, right, like because the, the, it was feast or famine, you know. But I would say across the, across the time we, we didn't lose money, you know, really. Like we kind of yeah. broke even and um, that was something that I couldn't have, ever imagined at the start you know um yeah i was fortunate that i that i am relatively i'm i'm not conservative particularly in business like in terms of ideas for the restaurant and dishes but i'm really conservative with money like in terms of mm-hmm. i don't take a lot of money out of the business mm-hmm. i try to leave it there for a rainy day we pay our suppliers every wednesday all of the debt in the business is calculated every wednesday so we kind of know where we are, right? We don't we don't get ourselves into too much trouble. And um, fortunately, I've been doing that since I took ownership of the company because I'd I'd learned a couple of times how not to do it from other people. And um, so I just had this very hard rule about calculating the costs and paying the suppliers every Wednesday. That served us really well when the pandemic hit. You know, I didn't wasn't carrying a lot of debt, uh, just a small amount. And um, but if we had have been, you know, it would have been really hard. You called the closure and rebranding of Attica a near-death experience in an interview. And I'd love for you to explain the idea, that idea of that near-death experience. But also, I'm curious if today you feel like you have the freedom to have a fresh start after this experience. Huh, great, great question. Um, yeah, I think I just... I think it, it felt like a near-death experience because, you know, there was a, a time, as I've talked about, where you know, I just couldn't see a way out of it. And, um, yeah, I just thought that we wouldn't survive. But at some point that became kind of a strength, thinking that you're probably going to fail, so you may as well just lay your chips on the table and just all bets on, right? Like it's all or nothing now. And it's always, always been like that anyway. Like it's not like, you know, this is like a wildly successful business in terms of fi- the financials. It, it needs to make a profit. It, it must make a profit. All restaurants must make a profit to be sustainable, you know, to be able to pay people properly and to take care of people um, and to be responsible. So that's not a, that's not a question, but I, but it, but it, but probably just where I came from and the unlikeliness of me owning the place 
um, and having my own restaurant to me meant that I just, you know, when it was back into a corner, like, what are you going to do? Like, you know, I didn't have anything before, I suppose. So now that I've made something, I really didn't want to lose it either. And um, then to your um, other point, yeah, I feel like, you know, I feel immense freedom going through it. Like now I feel, I feel a lot more confident, you know, I feel like I could do anything, you know, like I really feel like I could do anything I set my mind to. Um, and maybe I sort of felt like that a little bit before, but I didn't have the confidence to because never ever would have made all the changes and done all the things that we did if we hadn't had the pandemic. So that to me is, you know, the silver lining, I suppose, or the positive side, you know, we all know about the negative side. We don't need to talk about that. It, it's, it, it's, um, yeah, it's that, you know, that I feel like I could put my mind to something if, if as long as I was passionate about it, I, I really have this other philosophy that I I don't believe in bringing things into the community that aren't needed, you know, or wanted. Like, so I don't have an ambition to, you know, open a sandwich shop really or a hamburger place just because that's not what I'm passionate about. That's not me being against sandwiches or hamburgers. I love both of them. But for me personally, I don't, that's not, you know, I can do that, probably make money from it, but I don't feel like that's what's needed in the community. So I feel like I would never bring a product to the market that's not, necessary um because we've already got oversaturation of things anyway like i mean you've been to melbourne it's a crazy you know restaurant city like food obsessed and so yeah i I feel like you know with just having some you know kind of integrity about it i you know i can't just do something that is a, a money opportunity i need to do something that i really passionately believe in and i feel like those sort of ideas work anyway you know like um and I would kind of feel like making money is a byproduct of being really passionate about something and doing it really well, you know, having some character about yourself. And, um, but yeah, it's, you know, it, it's been a life changing thing for sure, the whole experience. And not just for me, but for Kylie, you know, and for the team, it's made everybody, you know, incredibly flexible, you know, like um, I think in, in structured restaurants like mine with a history, there can be resilience to change, you know, when people have gotten comfortable to the way things are, you know, and what the pandemic was, was sort of reset the team like that and said, Hey, like change is good. Actually, sometimes it's necessary, not just for survival, but for creativity and for energy as well. And, and it's better just to embrace it rather than to be terrified of it. Um, and, you know, I'll try to give you as much warning as I, as I can as the owner about these changes so that you you can come to terms with them. Um, I didn't just like blindside you with it. Uh, but um, yeah, it, yeah, I wouldn't, I say no regrets. Like, you know, I, if I had my time again and I had a choice of going through it or not, I'd probably choose to go through it. In the past, you've said that Attica needs to open to 62 customers five nights a week. And that's the only way that it's viable. And I know you just mentioned a few minutes ago that, you're choosing to now have a total of 52 Mm. customers a night. So does that all make sense right now? What stage of the post pandemic? (laughs) (laughs) We'll wait to the next profit and loss. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Well, what stage uh, are you? I'm my own worst enemy because I always want it to be better and better at the cost of everything especially the cost of the finance financials like 
when I choose to make it better, what I'm actually choosing is to put less money in my pocket. So that's the conscious decision, you know, to improve it, which has always like been the motivating, the main motivating factor here is to get better, to get better. Um, you know, not at the cost of individuals, but, you know, to get better as a company and not just as a restaurant, but as an organization, not just for the customers, but for the staff, even mostly for the staff. Um, and so like I, you know, the only real way to look at that, like as a business person is to go, well, there's only so much money, you know, restaurants approximately make the same percentages if they're being run, run, run well. I mean, depending on which country you're in, you know, like in Australia, they and successful restaurants would be all making about the same amount of money. So therefore it's like up to the owner as to how they choose to spend that. Right. Uh, I know that doesn't really answer whether or not going from 62 to 52 can be still viable in part to cover that and to make the experience what we think is going to be better and more manageable and more like um, sustainable because the difference between 52 and 62 is a lot like in terms of both revenue but also um, but also in terms of the energy required um, is quite different as well and it's you had another 10 covers on a 14 course tasting menu. It's like, you know, held a skelter a little, it's, you know, it's, it's hectic. So what we learned during one of the brief periods that were open in the lockdown is that we were restricted numbers and we weren't profitable, but people were spending more. So the philosophy is that perhaps by having more time with the guests not that they don't have a lot of time already, but they're having more time, that it might be viable to do 52. We've also put the price up as well. Now, I think most restaurants need to put the price up, um, like every restaurant pretty much. And I think restaurants have an opportunity in, in these times to sort of actually make a little stand about that and then explain that as well, you know, Um most people, if they knew what the percentages of profit were on restaurants, I don't think would be so against restaurants putting their price up. The other thing too is the cost of everything is rising and the cost of dining out is not rising in line with those costs with inflation. So that those are the two things. Now, the third thing will be in a month or two months' time whether or not that, that remains to be seen. But I, I think it's possible and I think and I think what we're trying to do by doing less covers as well is, is – give our people a slightly better life as well that's that's one part of it so it just becomes a little bit more manageable at 52 it means that we, we introduced many years ago a four-day working week in the kitchen we're about to we have just introduced a four-day working week in the front of house so now that is balanced um because i try to see like and in terms of like uh, sort of equality through the business is that everybody is having you know the same standard of living. If you're on, if you're in a position at a certain tier, then you're the same pay through the company. Um, you have the same benefits, same opportunities. Tips are shared amongst all of the staff, excluding myself and Kylie, evenly, no matter your position. Um, just like making it fair. That, so that, I'm sorry. Is is that front front and back of house? Yeah. Wow, that's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, 
So in Australia, I you know don't believe that people are tipping just for service. So you know they're tipping because, and also, just as you know, the kitchen can't do their work without the front of house. The front of house can't do their work without the kitchen. So it's by by doing things like that, it it actually helps break down divisions and resentment in the business. Yeah. If if a front of house person is earning four times the amount of the kitchen person, then that's a problem, you know, for yeah. me. So, and it's not a problem I want in my business. What other people do in their business, that's that's up to them. But just for me, it doesn't fly. So um, I know that's not like giving you an exact answer, but I guess the, the proof is going to be in the pudding. But I'm pretty sure that we can make it work, you know, like I'm pretty sure that we make it work. And I think that it, there are some things that you need to do sometimes which cause short-term pain to the company but give you long-term dividends. And that's kind of what we're trying to undertake this year as we go through a bunch of social, environmental and um, and um, sort of management um, standards that we're introducing, um, which I feel like, you know, is something that I've wanted to do for a long time and, and it's something that we are in the process of making happen across the next year. And this fits in with that line of thinking. Well, now's the time, if any, to try everything, right? Yeah. It's the perfect time. Yeah. Yeah. So historically, Attica has been a destination restaurant, meaning you're not just, you know, a destination restaurant, but you have a lot of people that travel just to come to your restaurant from all over the world. And so with travel starting to come back and borders opening to international visitors, I'm wondering, has Attica changed or does it remain a destination spot or perhaps has it molded into a hybrid? Maybe your local customer base actually expanded during the pandemic. Maybe people who never dined with you previously enjoyed the accessibility and price point of Attica at home. And maybe you gained new fans. So I'm just curious to that. All of that. Yeah. Like. We've gained a huge amount of new fans, local fans, which is tremendous. You know, that reach of Attica at home was vast and, um, you know, thousands of people ate the food that had never been able to eat it before for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, not being able to get a reservation, not being able to afford it, um, I don't know, not making the time, lots of lots of different things. Um, and... And so that was a beautiful thing and it's something that, you know, as I'm talking about those sort of social, environmental and uh, management um, initiatives is that's a part of, it's part of that. It's not about, it's not forgetting about those people that helped us through. We wouldn't be here today without them. Um, you know, from, there's just a beautiful story in the first week when we ran a bake shop and a woman who had lost her job came, was in the line and I was serving and she said to me, I've come to buy you know, a piece of cheesecake, which was $7 um, because um, because I've lost my job, but I really, this is my last paycheck and I really wanted some of it to go to you. And I was like, oh, we both stood in the shop and cried, you know. <laughs> um, just, an, an, just an amazing moment. I'll never forget it my entire life, you know. And in a way, there's like the lesson for how to run the business in that moment in a lot of ways, you know. So, not to forget about people like that, like not to forget about people that could never come before and had this opportunity to come and have something different. It wasn't Attica, it was Attica at home, but it still meant a lot to them. It meant a lot to us. And um, and that's like a priceless kind of, just a priceless human experience anyway for somebody to experience. And uh, and 
um, the importance of being able to have those experiences not lost on me. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, um, we've been amazed since we reopened by the support of Melbourne as well and, and, and many, many, many people, hundreds of people that have never, ever been to the restaurant came for the first time. And I, I really think that's off the back of Adequate Home, you know, of, of either engaging with it or reading about it or hearing about it or following you know, Attica or myself on Instagram and feeling inspired to come to the restaurant. It's been so cool. Like you wouldn't think that, you know, it's a city of 5 million people, but you wouldn't think that it could sustain us, you know, that's in a, in a way, but, and it has. So that, that's been you know, really, and just really rewarding, I think, is the mm-hmm. idea. Because I think, you know, I definitely felt like in the past, I felt like, oh, business could be a bit, a two bit, a little bit too dependent on, the need for accolades in terms of like driving customers and the need for international guests as well, because they were you know, always about 15, 20% of the cust- uh, customer base. And so they, they didn't only just go away, but so did interstate, <laughs> interstate customers, which are a huge, you know, customers from all around Australia are a huge part of our, and New Zealand are a huge part of our clientele as well. Um, so it's just really like, yeah, it, it's just really good to know because there, there's in restaurants in Melbourne I really admire. There's a restaurant called The Flower Drum. It's been going since the 70s. There's another one called Francois. Um, both excellent restaurants, like amazing. Some of the best restaurants in Melbourne have been going for a very long time. And I find that really inspiring. I think it's a really cool cool thing that a, that a restaurant could, you know, support a restaurant. Uh, a city could support a restaurant for 45 years, you know. I know you have those restaurants in, in New York as well. They're, they're just gems of culture and um and history and i would like you know that's what i would like attica to become as well you know like um i never want to stop innovating but i i think it would be cool if it was around for a long time you know because i feel like i want to run it you know for that that's how i feel today anyway you know that's how i feel you know after going through this well last october i read one of your instagram posts and was moved by your thoughts on restaurants evoking emotion One of my favorite parts was you summarizing the psychology of dining and your journey observing it all. You said, quote, all the greatest experiences I've ever had in dining rooms were about emotion and the unquantifiable element that is hard to write about, but you always know it when you feel it. It's a combination of skill, quality, environment, care energy, and most likely, pure good luck. It can't be manufactured, and from my experience, seldom comes in the first few years of running a joint. Since it is hard to write about, I'd like to open up this conversation for you to expand and free flow about this emotion and element. Well, I think for me, it comes back down to finding humans fascinating, finding people deeply interesting um, and just loving being around interesting great people and meeting new people Um, and so the restaurant this restaurant has been a great conduit for me to be able to do that and also restaurants around the world have been also you know a a great place to go to experience that and I I think for me often some of the most memorable experiences in restaurants have been the most unexpected you know um, where or 
where you could just feel the person just striving to make it an amazing experience, you know, and it was right through it. It had good intentions, you know. It is it is a hard thing to write about. It maybe it's a hard thing to talk about too, but I I, I could probably give you some examples of, of times here that 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 happened. Um, behind me, you know, on the wall is, is a letter that I got sent um, to me, and um, and it was you know it was from a from a woman that came in with her husband, and um, he was terminally ill. It was their first time here, and you know they. I'm not going to read all of it, but it it, it talks about um, you know how much they enjoyed it, and but then it sort of you know it goes on to say I don't know why I did this. I can't even really remember doing this, but it says just before we left, your staff member pre- presented us with your beautiful book and with a heartfelt and lovely message inside the cover from you. Mitch was so blown away. He couldn't open it until we got into the car where he shed a few tears. He couldn't believe, <clears throat> sorry, it's going to make me tear up. <laughs> it's a hard one to read. Um, he just couldn't believe a guy so talented and busy as yourself took the time to do something so kind. He had many ongoing health concerns but unexpectedly went into a coma and passed away. The, the past few weeks have been so incredibly difficult but my memories of that night with him at Attica is so, so special. Thank you <clears throat> for generously giving me one of my most treasured memories. Yeah. Mm. Um, mm. I guess that's kind of when I wrote that, that's what I'm kind of getting at, you know, like that um, that a restaurant, that the ability that restaurants have to invoke that um, extraordinarily positive emotion in somebody. And even even through something as devastating as losing the most important person to you in your life, you know, and that is the great privilege of running a restaurant, um, I think. And that you know, I, and that has happened many times. Similar things, you know, people have come here for their last meals, you know, like so sad, you know, wow. that's so sad. Um, you know, it was the last thing they wanted to do before they die was come here. Like that's just. Yeah. That is such a privilege um, to be able to, um, you know, cook that meal for those for those people. You know, there's no pressure mm-hmm. either. Mate. But um, I suppose, um, yeah, it's just like about human emotions and intentions, and just trying to do a good job, um, be kind, um, treat people with you know as much respect as you can, and. Um, and make it, you know, give them a memory that goes beyond the transaction. That's really what I'm interested in is kind of, you know, when I talk about the psychology of restaurants. That's kind of what I mean. I mean that that when it's really good, it doesn't feel like you're paying money for it. You know, you, you are, but you know yourself, if you had a tremendous experience, it wouldn't matter. It wouldn't matter how much it was, right? It would be able to have finite resources. But I was talking to a friend the other day about, how much would you pay for a pizza if it was like the best one you ever had? And he was like, whatever, like a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars. Like, I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know exactly, right? Like it was life changing, you know, like not yeah. everything can be life changing, but you know, but some things are. Um, yeah, you know, restaurants have given me some um incredible experiences, you know, like yeah, just uh and and so that, you know, I remember those and I try to carry those forward as well. Like, you know, those times that I when I was younger before I owned a restaurant. You know those those sublime acts of kindness that people, um, you know, gave me in restaurants. I try to 
I remember those and I, and I, you know, that I, I try to pay that forward. Like you know, it's not a static thing. It doesn't just end with that historical experience. You know, it can live on in people, mm. you know, you promote that and, um, and remember it and be grateful for it. You know, um, it's, you know, this is not like Attic is not the first restaurant that ever existed in Australia. There's like many, many, many restaurants that came before that paved the way for us to do what we do today. And um, and I've had many, many experiences in my life, and they they help inform you know inform that right like that like a yeah. like a, people talk about palate memory. Maybe it's kind of like a um, an emotional memory as well of good things that happened. And you know, you, of course, you naturally hospitality work because we want to we want to keep that happening we want to keep that you know happening for people um you know it's a super cool it's a super cool thing that we can do we should never forget that i feel like the last couple of years we might be prone to forget it a little and before that maybe not take it for granted but um you know just more broadly not just my own experience but we you know we really can provide something that i really believe in hospitality i really believe that we can you know we can do great things for people it's not trivial what we do it's important work and um you know, and skillful, and yeah, I think there's <clears throat> there's kind of like a little part of me as well <clears throat> that sorry that understands like that it's a difficult thing to do to be <clears throat> a hospitality worker, and um, but yet it takes such vast skill <clears throat> and. I think, um, you know, I really appreciate it. Mm. And I, I just want other hospitality people to <clears throat> hope that they feel like it's good enough, you know, mm. what they do. It's amazing. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, sorry, I'm tearing up so much. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, what I'm trying to say is you can be made to feel like it can be made to feel pretty shitty mm-hmm. by customers sometimes yeah, and um, the industry. But I think it's really important to not focus on those moments and to focus on the, the moments when you used your immense skill mm. and emotional intelligence, which hospitality people have in spades. You know, front of house people be able to read the room, mm-hmm. judge who's had a bad day and a good day kitchen people being able to make beautiful food with their hands <clears throat> that nourishes and um, uplifts people mm-hmm. we can be a little downtrodden and what I'm trying to say is that I think that level of skill is perhaps not appreciated um, by ourselves in the way that it should be you know like mm-hmm. we often come from difficult backgrounds um, fallen into this career sometimes um, and don't have formal qualifications, but it doesn't mean what we, uh, it doesn't mean what you're doing or what is not on an expert level and is any less important than any other job that has status or no status in our society, you know? Right. Oh, it's, it's incredible. It's incredibly fulfilling. And I think you're right. I think the last two years, some of that has died. And so, you know, that's why I had tears in my eyes with you because what you're saying, that's why we're in this, right? It's, it's a very deep and powerful industry that we're in. And it, it does, it, it transforms lives, you know, front of house, back of house, 
the energy that you are literally handing and passing along in your dishes that people are then consuming. This is deep, you know, on many levels. It really is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, it's so incredibly personal, you know, um, that's probably why I got so emotional about it. But, it, it, yeah, it's just like I can't think of really anything more intimate than than having sex with somebody that you love, you know, right. um, than making food for somebody <laughs> with your hands and then they're going to eat that. Like, And, you know, if, and for it to taste so much better by somebody serving it to you with grace and humor and and love it's an it's a remarkable thing i yeah i think it's one of the most taken for granted aspects of culture you know yeah Yeah. i'm not talking about like celebrity chefs or cooking or the fame and stuff i'm talking about the simple act of true hospitality right how do you continue to find inspiration every year um i'm going to increase um my uh my laser treatments um uh, no, um, the way for me to, you know, it's evolved a lot over time, but one of the main ways that I seek inspiration is, and I've talked about this quite a bit in the past, but is by um, seeking inspiration outside of our industry and being surrounded by um, different people from all walks of life. Um, that is my major source of inspiration. And I just like to be around people that are, I find interesting and having different experiences that sometimes these people challenge me, challenge my ignorance, challenge my knowledge, um, and push me. And I just like going into those situations with um, no expectation and just seeing what happens. Um, so I'm really privileged that I am in the position where I can have these kinds of experiences and have them regularly because I make time in my schedule for it because it's what I need at this point in my life and they always lead to like really cool things you know um inadvertently and it could just be like hanging out with a friend who's in filmmaking and just an idea comes up that I could just a just a fragment of an idea comes up here that I could then develop into something at Attica for people um it's really about trying to be completely open to new experiences and new ideas. And and the other thing I do as well always is if I think of something, I'll capture it because it, they're fleeting for me. They don't stick around. So as I was having this idea about the tart while I was being zapped this morning, I was actually genuinely concerned that I would forget it before the treatment was over. Um, so, I, But I couldn't reach for my phone because I was being attacked. On, but normally I would type it straight into notes or email it to myself, always, always. Like if I'm driving my car and I have an idea, I'll pull over and I'll record it because um, for sure I'm going to I'm going to lose it. And there's actually nothing worse in my in my mind than having a good idea and losing it. Like it, mm. and sometimes I wonder, like you know, sometimes I wonder what, like, if I lose them, like where will they go and they'll never, would they ever come back into the circulation of my thinking? Or, but um, yeah, like just really being open especially in the last four years has been life-changing and helped me creatively it just has meant that creativity is not as labored you know Mm. Um, yeah whereas like probably my approach before was to grind it out you know Mm. really grind it out um which was fine too but it did put a lot of pressure on me like in terms of you know it's just better if it just naturally comes you know um and it's not forced 
because all the forced ideas they never work out you know right. they i go to test them i go to develop them and then they're then they're just not seeming they're just not seeming very cool to me at all you know uh, whereas <laughs> like some simple like you know of the moment idea like just the simplest idea is generally going to be the best yeah what does your ideal future look like my ideal future um is that i get my company into the position to be not you know the best small restaurant in australia but the best one of the best small businesses that's my goal that's been my goal since i took ownership of it um is to not reference my business as a restaurant as such um or compare it to other restaurants as a business um but to compare it to other businesses that i admire um that aren't within the hospitality sphere um there's many reasons for that um but one of them is to try to find like a a higher standard i suppose it's probably the best way to describe it especially a higher Mm -hmm. um ethical standard um and it's not to say that I don't think there are great ethical restaurants out there. Of course, there are. There's thousands. But um, I just wanted to judge my business. And I'm not talking about the food or the level. I'm talking about the business. I'm talking about how the business interacts with the environment, how it interacts with its employees, and how it interacts with its community. Those are the three main tenets of my business, the way I view it. So that's a process um, that I'm undergoing and it's a long-term process um, in set, trying to set up this thing that could grow but or you know could grow in the right way. I don't actually really know how to grow it at the moment because we're here all the time. We do it, we run it. I don't know what it would be like if that wasn't the case because I don't have it set up probably in a way that would allow me to do that, you know. And I am working out a way of doing it that I can't kind of talk about right now, but it's it's a third-party way of being audited um, that is performance-based but also is rock-solid. It means that I'm able, undergoing this, this certification, I suppose you could call it, I'm able to be shown my blind spots, hmm. um, warts and all, right, all of the things. All the things you're doing wrong, you know, like, like <laughs> just mirror right up to your face, 365 degrees, holistic, like vision of everything that you impact in your business, how it affects other things and whether or not you want to do something about it. Now, you couldn't possibly do something about all of the things that your business impacts if you're being truthful, right? Like especially yeah. on the environmental side of things like, right. you know, restaurants are are medium to large impact size businesses. Whereas like another business that is solely, you know, set up to perhaps produce solar panels or something that is an environmentally good thing is has got a smaller impact potentially. Undergoing this kind of process and planning across the next year to try to gain certification um, that would put us in a position to thrive um, on those three areas that I mentioned first and foremost our staff um the planet and uh the community because the community is really really important to us and we believe in business as some business as a mechanism that um doesn't just take from society but contributes to it um actively as part of its business and we we've always done that um but this is about formalizing it uh, so that it's really rock solid on all those different ways. Um, and therefore, if you had this 
this rigid and diligent structure and well-intentioned structure that was set up within your business, you could arguably do something else and not make a whole heap of mistakes because you could then apply that same standard to the next business. Um, and everybody would know what to do, touch wood. That's that's the sort of idea, as opposed to there being, you know, three or four people making sure that everybody knows what the standard right. is every day because they're always there, right? Like everybody here understands what needs to be done. Don't get me wrong, from a cultural point of view, from a behaviour point of view, from a respect point of view. But, yeah, as you scale and you get a bunch of new people on who don't understand, you know, the philosophy of the restaurant because they haven't been exposed to it that how could they possibly know there needs to be an infrastructure in place that, so that they have a guide, you know, in a way. So just trying to set up something for the long term, which will mean there's some short-term pain because changes has got to be made, you know, um, to get better. And I know, though, that through trying to get better on those sorts of ideas in terms of, like, looking after your team uh, especially, that the performance is raised as well. So it's not just about, you know, being kind it's also about wanting higher performance as well and understanding how if you provide certain things for your employees how it affects them in their day-to-day lives how it improves their day-to-day lives and naturally improves the the restaurant yeah yeah have there ever been any signs or synchronicities in your life that led to new opportunities for you in this industry if so please describe the moment synchronicities opportunities that led to sorry that led to new opportunities for you like if there were any signs or synchronicities that you said oh this i I see it i gotta do this i gotta this is meant to Um, be this is my gut instinct yeah yeah i am a big gut instinct person so there there's always things going on um there's always opportunities sometimes it it's difficult to decide on whether to do things or not, right? Like, um, and I just sort of like to consider them. But coming out of the lockdown at the end of 2020, I went to, there's this huge shopping mall here in Melbourne called Chadston. It's the biggest one in Australia. And I, it was a Sunday, the restaurant was closed. I had my children. We were in the car with Kylie. We were driving home. But we were locked down, so we couldn't do anything. And I pulled up to the garage and said, you know what, I really don't want to go inside. I I can't, I've had enough, you know. And they were like, no, nah, nor do we, Dad. We don't want to go inside either. I said, well, th- pretty much the only thing we could do was go grocery shopping or something like that at that time. The restrictions would allow us to go to do this. To We were in the zone to go to this sh- so I said, let's just go to the shopping mall, which we wouldn't do normally. Like, it's not my favorite thing to go to the shopping mall. So we drove to the shopping mall, and it was a bit of a ghost town. Probably only about 20% of the businesses in this huge mall were open. And we did a walk around the mall, around the different uh, levels of the mall. It's like an exercise walk. It's like going for a walk in a park, you know? <laughs> and um, and it was, like, fascinating. We were all so excited, like, haven't seen retail for, like, you know, a year or something. And in this mall, it has a lot of high-end stores. And as we walked past the Gucci store, there was no line. Now, in Melbourne, outside Gucci stores, there's always a line, always. Like, you never just have to walk into a Gucci store, ever, ever, right? Like, so if you go to the Gucci store in the city, 
then there's a line. And I think the lines are manufactured, but whatever. Like there's always a line. And for me, I never want to go in there because I don't want to line up for that. Like what are you lining for? Like that's crazy. But we walked past the first time I'd ever been in that shop mall, there was no line at Gucci. It was open. I was like, wow, I walked past. And then we, we keep walking and we walk we walk and walk and walk and we end up at Kmart, which is a huge um, low-cost department store here, I suppose. Um, and now there's never, ever, ever a line at Kmart, right? Like ever, like never, not in the history. And they had like quite a large number of people that were allowed in the store. I think it was like 280. And still there was a massive line of about 70 or 80 people. And I remember looking at it and going, hmm, I reckon that my business is more at the Gucci end and that, and but where we need to be right now is more at that Kmart end of things, right? Like I don't think that we're anything like Gucci, but whatever, that's that's where I right. see, yeah, price point. I'm like, that's where all the people are at. They're all at that very low cost store. So I built a business plan after experiencing and witnessing those two juxtapositions and that led to opening Attica Summer Camp, which was a restaurant that we opened, operated for five months, which was, at, which was at a fraction of the price of Attica during the pandemic. Um, and it just felt like I could see that we're going to come out of the lockdown. I couldn't see how Attica at $330 was going to cut it by itself with restricted numbers. I knew that we wouldn't have takeaway anymore. So we, Kylie and I, hustled and built a pop-up restaurant in the country which would seat at its most customers 400, I think it would do on the one day, did 490 people or something like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and it employed 50 people while Attica was running as well um, with about 30 at that point, I think, because we were doing like 20 covers or 25 covers a night. So, yeah, that was like a... I guess that was like witnessing something and then seeing an opportunity and that was part of like surviving the last two years. It was a wild, crazy ride doing that restaurant in the country, like insane. Um, and we took a, a group of people that we'd really never worked with before and one or two we had and uh, and they we all came together and it was an amazing experience actually, right? They just did like so well. And um, there's this really wonderful moment where, you know, a lot of these people were sort of second chance in hospitality, hadn't had a good experience in hospitality or um, were coming out of retirement to come and work at this place with us. Um, and we sort of had to employ anybody that came along because it was so hard to get staff at that time. Um and they did such a great job and it was this wonderful moment in the kitchen this one day where, you know, unbeknown to us, the New York Times reviewed it and um, it was in print in the New York Times as well as online. That doesn't happen very often if you're not from, you know, no. the state. And um, it was a really favourable review. And I stood there in front of them and I said, holy shit, look at this, like, look at this review, like, I said, people who work their entire lives and never see their work in the New York Times. You know, like, you should be so proud, right? This may have never happened again to any of us, you know? And they were all like, you know, just huge, just grins. They'd done, they'd worked so hard. It was so, it was so tough to 
get that thing off the ground and to yeah. create like a great restaurant at a, a low price point. Um, it was heaps of fun. It was noisy, musical, out huge outdoor dining room. Um, yeah, it was it was a it was a wild ride. And Kylie and I, um, you know, were doing that alongside each other every day for, you know, all the hours. It was like early Attica again, but it was a really joy joyful thing. I learned a lot from it. You know, there's a lot of freedom and a lot of kind of looseness about it, and that was a good thing. You know, it's what was needed. Yeah. That's incredibly synchronistic to see Gucci and Kmart and so clearly this is where it is right now. I mean, it can't be more clear. That's awesome. No, I know. You followed it though. You followed that instinct, which not everyone does. No, well, I just, yeah, I just think I, yeah, I knew the writing was on the wall. It was pretty obvious. It was really obvious to me. Probably wouldn't have been obvious to a lot of people for sure, but it was really obvious to me. I'm like, not where I want to be up that end, you know, like I'm like, it's not what's needed right now. I guess it's about like kind of thinking about what's needed in the community, right, in terms of restaurants and and just adapting to it. Yeah. Wouldn't do it again though. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> when you said over 400 covers a day, I was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty wild. Yeah. Uh, next we're going to talk about flow state. So a flow yep. state also known as being in the zone, is the mental state when a person is performing an activity fully immersed in a feeling of energized focus, clarity, enjoyment in the entire process. doesn't feel like work. It's effortless attention. You're giving the activity, very euphoric feeling. And it's during this altered state of consciousness that your mind functions at its peak and a sense of happiness flows through your body. The example I usually use for my guests is I can get into it if I'm at my restaurant when it's closed. Maybe I'm working on some menu items like for the beverage menu and I usually have like a SoundCloud station on, like some deep house music and the you know beats are just blasting in the speakers and the recipes just come out and they flow through me and it doesn't feel like work. And it's awesome. And, and I'm there alone. No one else is there. And it's just me and the music. So as a chef, I wanted to know, have you ever reached this state? If you have, if you could describe your surroundings leading up to it and what it felt like for you being in the state. Um, yeah. I mean, there's probably two things that come to mind. They're both really different. One is probably going back to summer camp and because I was the builder, the main worker on the site to build the restaurant with the tools, you know, we had some help as well, but that was me for two months, 19 hours a day, seven days. And what meant was that I built up to the opening, like because stuff had to be built, right? I didn't have any time. So I'd sort of written a menu, but I hadn't had any time to practice it much really like the day before we opened was the first crack I had at the menu. And then we opened and it was a little disastrous at the start, the first probably day or two. Um, But because of that, I hadn't, you know, know, there was like 30 people in the kitchen and I hadn't had the opportunity to train them. So I kind of had to do everything by myself for the first time in a really long time. Not, Not everything, but I had to, I remember doing the larder as all of the first guests came in on that first sitting, you know, and it was rounds of 120 people each every two hours, 
right? That's how the restaurant rolled. And so all of these orders, dockets come in, like 40 or 50 orders came in. And I, and I, with a couple of others, I'm mostly just doing the dishes, not really able to show them. And then, but I got into a, a, a situation where I was like, oh, I remember how to do this. Like, I remember what this was like, like pre-Attica, you know, um, where just everything's kind of flying and you're just like going for it. And then I went, remember running out to, the, we had a huge rotisserie grill outside, charcoal grill. And then I remember going out there and doing exactly the same thing. And it was just, it was so fun. It was so terrifying. But we got in a zone. And I remember one of the young guys saying to me, um, something like, oh, my God, like, you've got so much energy or something. Like, I'm not sure. Like, is that that old fella over there who's, um, you know, I thought he might be a bit, like, unfit or something, you know. So <laughs> that, that was uh, that was a, a really fun memory. And as we went on, we sort of all became like that. And so, we, you know, we'd be on those huge days, we're doing over 400 covers. It'd be four or five of us working on this rotisserie grill, and it's so hot. It's so brutal. And, um cooking things and moving the charcoal around and cutting things and serving things manically. And, um, and, but it did get into a really amazing rhythm and flow. And then the other, the other thing that happens most days is this is my office here. I'm upstairs above Attica and this is sort of like a, it, it, it's called my office, but it's also called the Attican Hustle. There's a little bar up here. Not that I'm really a drinker at all, but I might have some friends over before their meal or something if they're having dinner at Attica. It's a really nice little room. I've got a record player in here. I've got a really good speaker, Bluetooth speaker in here. This is a photography studio in here as well where I shoot a lot of Attica stuff. Um, but this is also where I write. So I will play music, like much like you were saying, either through the headphones but mostly on the really nice speaker that I've got or the record player and quite loudly. And that normally takes place between sort of 430 and 6 p.m., which is the, the period where I feel the most ineffective in the business because that's the period where everybody is setting up their sections in the kitchen for service and we can't work on development stuff anymore. And the offices also sort of downstairs offices kind of clearing out. And it, I just need to come up here and just be away from everybody for a little bit. So I'll come up here for an hour, hour and a half, two hours and put the music on and I'll I'll write and do work, and I definitely get into a flow state, particularly around writing. I love to write, and um, so if I'm writing, if I need to write something, um, then that's how that's where I need to be. I need to be in that flow state, as you allude to, with the right music, um, which always evokes kind of emotion in me. So, you know, I write better if I'm listening to the right music. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, we're done. Chef Shuri, thank you for sharing your story with us. I believe that the journey is always greater than the destination. It's on the path that we learn, evolve, and encounter lessons that shape us into our best selves. I always like ending the podcast by asking if there's any takeaway that you'd like to leave with listeners that can positively influence their lives. It could be something that we just discussed a lesson you've learned on your journey or general life advice that you live by? Yeah. um, Never give up. Um, Never let anybody tell you that you're no good and find somebody who cares about you, you know, a mentor. I wouldn't be here today talking to you if it wasn't for mentors. And I, you know, 
it's something I really believe in and I am certainly a product of many people that have helped me. Um, so if you can find a special person that you know, has been there and done that and can be a sounding board to you as somebody to bounce ideas off or if you find yourself in a tricky situation, somebody you can talk to, that just go a really long way in life and you won't feel alone and you'll be able to make decisions easier and, um, and clearer and be more successful. That's ultimately the goal. And where can people follow you? Uh, at Ben Shuri, it's B-E-N-S-H-E-W-R-Y on Instagram, uh, at Attica Melbourne, uh, and www.attica.com.au. Well, thank you for listening. And if you haven't already, follow Have You Yet wherever you get your podcast.